0: Netter, just talking to teachers
1: talking to teachers about academic research and evidence-based practice with continuing professional development at PNA
2: 1977 on Twitter Netter, just talking to teachers
1: Hello welcome to this week's Nailers Natter. This week we have a finely crafted episode, small and perfectly formed. So I'm in conversation this week with Michael Childs about his new John Cat book, The Craft of Assessment. And Michael began his career as a geography teacher in a secondary school in the West Midlands, where he became head of department and then a senior leader with responsibility for teaching and learning. He then relocated to the Northwest, taking a short period of time out of the classroom to develop and deliver teacher training, both nationally and internationally. He's now head of department in a secondary school in the Northwest. And the podcast looks in depth at this book, The Craft of Assessment. We also have our usual and regular TDT section. So we have Michelle talking to TDT CEO David Weston, and they are in conversation about culture, something that is prescient with the upcoming return of more pupils to school. In the podcast pedagogy section this week, I am reading A Sage on the Stage by Michael Zwagstra. And in the shameless plug section, uh, I actually have a couple of things to promote this week, listeners. So uh, as we move, tentatively towards the new normal. Uh, Firstly, I am thrilled to be speaking at New Ed, which is Emma Turner's conference for teachers new to the profession, and this will be on the 27th of June. I'll be talking about behaviour, and my presentation will be entitled Behaviour, Ideology, Evidence and Pragmatism. I'm equally thrilled to be delivering a keynote to the online version of the Welsh Royal Society of Chemistry Conference, and this will be on my birthday, which, take note, listeners, is the 24th of June, so no better way to spend it. More details, including how you can attend, will be following soon. So, as become customary to say, without further ado, over to David Weston and Michelle to talk this week about culture.
2: Nailers, Natter, just talking to teachers. Teacher Development Trust Section. Learning from the team at TDT on best practice CPD with research. Nailers, Natter,
3: just talking to teachers. Hi, I'm Michelle from TDT, here with my colleague David. And today we're finishing a series of segments looking into different areas of school practice alongside our CPD quality audit framework. At the moment, a lot of teachers and leaders are preparing to go back to school and plan for this term and next. Having carried out this process with hundreds of schools, we've been able to pinpoint the practices that really make a difference and have been sharing some of these with you over the past few weeks, along with the research leaders could draw on as a result of what they find. So last week we covered focus and today we're finishing with culture. So David, what does this mean and why is it on the framework?
2: Thanks Michelle. Culture is probably the most important element on our framework. Um, It's really the backbone of whether a school is likely to improve and one of the things we've noticed most frequently is schools can implement the most wonderful professional development processes but unless the background culture really supports that professional learning and growth to take place then those processes just don't work and actually even well-designed professional learning can cause kickback and cause resentment and cause people to feel really quite grumpy if you haven't got the culture right so it's on the framework and it's the um, the first section that we explore because it's really fundamental it's a key building block to everything else
3: what would this look like in practice thinking of some of the schools that we've worked with
2: So one of the questions that we ask ourselves is, um, to what extent is professional development a priority within this school? Now, what we're looking for there is exploring how much of a priority it is within senior leadership team meetings, for example. In really great schools where professional learning works very well, you'll often find that teaching, learning and professional development are a core agenda item on senior leadership team meetings, but also within any middle leadership team, whether it's a phase meeting in primary or perhaps a subject meeting in secondary, people are always spending quite a lot of time thinking about how well are we ensuring that teaching and learning is going on, but also how are we making sure that we are get better at doing that as part of that not only do we want to see a key agenda item and being given prominence in meeting timetables but we also want to see leaders are really modeling how they prioritize it so leaders are talking about how they're doing their own learning leaders perhaps um, engaging in other learning and just sitting quietly and listening to other people or leaders talking about how they've engaged in their own challenges and how they've engaged in professional learning in order to try and get around those. So that idea of prioritization is really key. Another key area is buy-in. And this is a really common challenge. When we go into schools, we often find that leaders are very frustrated because they feel that staff aren't bought into the professional development, they feel there's resistance. Um, And this idea of buy-in, the way we approach it, we ask staff to what extent they feel they've had input into the decision-making process around professional development. To what extent do they feel it's really relevant to their needs. Now these are really important things in a school where professional learning is working well there will be regular annual if not more frequent processes by which teachers are being asked what professional learning do you need next year for you as an individual for the classes you teach um, or for the work that you do as well as for your career growth but then they're also asking subject teams, phase teams, specialist teams, In order to improve your area of the school, your specialism, what professional learning do you all need to engage in? And then as a whole organisation, what do we all need to do so that we are meeting the needs of children and we're developing as an organisation? So when staff can see how they're being heard, they can understand how professional learning decisions fit into the big picture of how the whole organisation is moving forward, how their team is moving forward and how it connects to them personally, people have a lot more buy-in. The next element we often look at are around safety and trust. So we explore the extent to which staff feel confident working with others, they feel confident popping in and out of each other's classrooms, or having conversations where they really get into depth about practice. In schools that are just beginning to develop in this area, we'll often see people start doing sharing great practice, for example. But in schools where they're doing a lot better at this, then it moves way beyond I've tried this and this is how it went, to people really exploring the theory, people that are much more explicit about how they're evaluating the impact of what they're doing. They're much clearer about how they've identified the problems in the first place, which are the right issues to be looking at, and how are we making sure that we're then tackling those. So that section about safety and trust ensures that people can have better quality conversations. It's about relational trust. It's about being confident that if you have to raise an issue with something, then your leader will listen to you. Or if you have to challenge your colleague and say, well, actually, maybe there's another way of looking at it, then they'll be open to that. Or similarly, that if someone comes into your classroom, you feel safe and trusted enough that they can have a really good quality conversation with you. And that leads on to collaboration. So good collaboration means lots of informal conversation about teaching and learning as well as formal opportunities. And we do find that in schools where professional learning is working well, and the culture is very strong people just have far more spontaneous conversations about teaching learning about research about their own professional learning and just passing in corridors a natural point of conversation will be how are you doing on this particular project we're working on or oh did you read that book whereas in schools where it's less embedded there may be structured times when it's happening but people aren't seeing it as part of their natural day-to-day conversation And then the final bit I suppose about culture is that everybody feels invested in. So not only that the school and the team feels invested in, but they as individuals are invested in. And that often comes down to conversations around career development. And we know that in really effective schools, People have regular line management conversations where people are asking them, how are you getting on in your learning? And what might you need to explore? What might you need to try and do? What opportunities would you like to explore to help move you forward, pursue your interests and build on your strengths? I think that those are important things that people feel valued as individuals within this bigger machine, as well as seeing how they contribute to the the whole organisation and those things all need to be in balance and of course all of this comes back to we know that in successful schools that are moving forward effectively you've got great quality communication, you've got a really good culture in which people can work with each other with great clarity, great coherence, they feel that they're really listened to, it feels like there's a great sense of organisational fairness and justice And they feel this safety and security and not constant threat and attack and and concern. So those are some of the reasons why this is the very first element in our framework. And you can begin to see how these sort of rich, vibrant, research rich and communication rich staff rooms are the hallmark of schools where professional learning is not only Working very well on paper, but is much more likely to translate into better morale and also people working in a much more focused and effective way to help improve outcomes for young people as well.
3: Thank you, David. Listeners, to understand more, we often recommend Craft and Pape's work Can Professional Environments in Schools Promote Teacher Development? Additionally, join a CPD Connect Up or TDT book club session where leaders come together to share ideas on vision in practice or TDT Network member schools, you can access archives for all of our recent webinars along with practice showcases from other schools within the network. This brings us to the end of our framework and practice discussions, but to learn more about our audit framework or speak with a member of the team, visit tdtrust.org.
2: just talking to teachers. Teacher Development Trust section, learning from the team at TDT
1: on best practice CPD with research.
2: Netter, just
1: talking to teachers. Okay, so hello, Michael, and welcome to the podcast. Hello, welcome. Good, to, good to, uh, good to be here. No problem. It's absolutely great um to be talking this afternoon about your book, which is the Craft of Assessment. So this is a brilliant new book which I've flown through this week, um, particularly when we're thinking about starting to plan to go back to school. But we won't get into that debate just at the moment. Um <laughs> I think we've had enough of that <laughs> this week. So um, the nice, gentle, easy introductory question, Michael, if that's all right. So I know that you do this in the um, in the, kind of the introduction to your book, but just tell us a little bit about your career to this point and uh, particularly interested in how you've ended up in the uh, the best part of the country, of course, the Northwest.
0: Yes, definitely, yes. So, um, yeah, my career began in um, Staffordshire, um, a overspilled town called Turnbull from Birmingham, um, so down in the West Midlands. Uh, worked at a school there for about eight years. Started as an NQT, uh, worked my way up into head of department. Did um, a bit of an associate senior sort of a leadership role with teaching and learning, and then sort of spread my wings beyond that and looked um, to seek some other school experience. Really, so I moved into um, another school and head of department, and then decided to relocate into the northwest, um, as you as you rightly said. Uh, nice place for the country, and then taking on um, a new role in a school uh, in the northwest for about four years, and then uh, this week looking to move on to another school uh, in September. So, so yeah, I mean that's that's sort of been my my sort of career profile in terms of roles, and then luckily I've got some additional responsibility outside of school, which is which is as a principal examiner. So that's um, that gives me. Um, a bit of extra sort of um, expertise to offer, if you like.
1: Definitely. And speaking of expertise, I mean, um, for listeners' benefit, the uh, the book is in my hands now, and the the amount of praise for the book, uh, and the book, of course, as we said at the beginning, is the craft of assessment. So we've got uh, Tom Sherrington, Kate Jones, uh, Chris Moyes, all all previous guests on here talking about the book and you know the bit that chris said really struck me he said meticulous to research publication rammed full of practical examples and advice that will undoubtedly become a go-to book so high praise indeed um from chris there and we're going to get into mm. the book if that's okay michael now so we'll just go into chapter one Now, we just said this, listeners, off air, that um, Michael has done my job for me here in terms of formulating the questions. So each chapter kind of starts with a question and a scenario. So what I'm going to do is, for each of the chapters, I'm going to kind of read that out and then read the scenario. And we'll just have a little discussion around um, the the practical aspects of of kind of implementing that in your classroom. So, So chapter one is the C, how can knowledge be effectively condensed? Um, forgive me reading your own work in front of you here, Michael, and I won't do it justice in the way that you would, but we'll, we'll give it a go. So Abigail, a year 10 pupil, is nearing the end of her first year of her GCSEs. She's a conscientious pupil who wants to achieve the highest grades across all her subjects by the end of year 11. She regularly reads over class notes from her exercise book and highlights the keywords, as well as using the recommended revision guides and workbooks suggested by her subject teacher. She spends time every week reading the textbooks and making extra notes. However, when it comes to using these notes, she's overwhelmed by the amount that she needs to revise. Now, in a normal year, this would have been exactly the situation as we speak at the moment. So tell us a little bit about how knowledge can be effectively condensed.
0: Yeah, on a bit of background to the scenario beforehand, Um, Abigail's actually my daughter, so I took the sort of inspiration from her. She is in year 10 at the minute. So, um, yeah, a bit of a change for her in recent weeks. But yeah, I mean, the whole aspect of condensing knowledge comes back to this idea that we want pupils to have some powerful notes to be able to use. Um, And over the years, watching my own children grow up and try and utilize revision guides or other notes, I've noted they've found it um, quite a challenge. So that really led me to think about what can we do what can teachers do in a classroom, or even parents, to be honest, what can they do to sort of support their child or teachers support their, their sort of um, pupils in making these powerful notes? I think it comes back to, and I talk about it at the start of the chapter, that this idea of having an understanding of the memory model so that um, we know how pupils or even um, any sort of adult or young child is going to sort of absorb the information that they receive and the idea that we, we keep that in our minds. So I talk in particular about one aspect that teachers can work on, which is the sort of idea of PowerPoint. And PowerPoint becomes um, a bit of a go-to for lots of teachers for a variety of reasons. And I know that often some sort of early stages in, in careers that teachers will use those as almost like a blanket um, because as they start to develop their sort of... Um, expertise and explanation it comes it comes as a as sort of that blanket sort of um, uh, aspect or tool to use so I've given some sort of strategies and it comes from what Andy Farby talked about about how you can really sort of narrow down that powerpoint so that it is more accessible to help students create those powerful notes and that's the first aspect that I talk about in the book the second bit I talk about I mean as, as teachers get more into their sort of um, expertise and their pedagogy and being able to explain, I talk about this idea of um, sort of using these four cogs of explanation. Um, and it really struck me when I was at school, I had a very articulate geography teacher who, who clearly showed his his passion for the subject. You could tell that, and, and the way that he did his explanations were crisp, they were sharp. And often if people don't get those crisp and sharp explanations from teachers that, um, That they uh, see day in day out it can mean that sometimes their notes can become um, almost uh, just overwhelming and and, uh, long and unnecessary so I talk about this idea of four different cogs and one of those cogs being that idea of precision that teachers have precision in their explanation so that students can take from um, their sort of expertise of their subject and really reduce it down into the key points that that are needed to be taken away from the lesson um and then i go into a few other strategies we talk about cornell notes which are quite powerful uh, in condensing um, knowledge making it really clear and useful Uh, the use of revision cards and how to create those that that they are really on point uh, rather than being um, littered with lots of different knowledge and then I go into talk about revision clocks, graphic organizers, and infographics. But the key aspect of the chapter is this idea that when, we, when we're presenting knowledge to pupils, we want them to, to be able to take away the, the sort of clear, crisp, sort of um, rich knowledge that they need to know, take away all the extra bits that um, often get filled in um, and can become unnecessary and then be able to turn it and use it um when you come to sort of look at the the next bit which is that which is that R of craft
1: yeah and into the R of craft and this is uh, one of my favorite chapters in terms of you know I've I've revisited this kind of topic quite a few times on the podcast uh, notably with uh, Mark Enter, who writes the the foreword for this that during the early stage of your career, it was all about discovery-based learning and, you know, Mm. the teacher being uh, the facilitator. So in this chapter, you go into talking about how do we generate reflective learners. And again, if I I may, uh, Michael, I'm just going to read the kind of setup to this chapter. So Sarah, uh, an English teacher of three years, has spent the last six weeks teaching Year 11 about A Christmas Carol, exploring the content and the context. She's worked tirelessly to delve into the meaning of the novella, Pupils have made detailed annotations demonstrating what appeared to be a good understanding of the text. However, three weeks later, when it comes to their assessment, pupils' progress, sorry, pupils' performance doesn't reflect their classwork. Sarah is confused. She was certain she had taught the novella and pupils had demonstrated understanding in the lesson. Therefore, she believed that they should have performed better in their assessment. So I guess the question yeah. we're moving to is, how do we go about generating reflective learners? And as well, later in the chapter, you talk about something that we are really passionate about on the podcast, is about how we can apply evidence-based research to the day-to-day classroom.
0: Yeah, definitely. I think um, this, this sort of chapter was was born out of, as well, the, the learning strategies of uh, retrieval and space practice. And I know that Kate Jones has done a wonderful book on, on retrieval practice in, in its entirety, um, but yeah, this this bit is about when they've created those notes and they've got those notes there. What do they actually do with them? Um, and we want want to create learners or or students or pupils uh, as as reflective as possible. Um, and I talk about there's a, a quote at the start to reflect to think deeply or carefully about something. Um, and in my experience, over early stages of my career, I talk about it at the start, like as you mentioned, that discovery-based learning was was sort of the the buzz phrase the in thing we could all all should be doing that. But inevitably it wasn't uh, it wasn't something that was effective. And it took me a while myself to realise that and reflect on my own practice as a teacher. But soon when you when you went back to a particular topic that you were teaching or when you went to try and reflect on something and and ask pupils if they had understood or could they recall it, they couldn't. They were recalling the, the sort of as I mentioned at the start, the, the sort of whole activity, uh, the novel activity that you were doing, they were rec- recovering or remembering that from memory, but not the actual knowledge that you wanted uh, them to have. So it really made me think about what it is that we that we can do to make them more reflective. Um, I, I suppose as well that quote by um, Kirshner Sweller as well, that, um, where they both talk about this idea of of um, learning being as defined as an alteration in long-term memory, and that's what wasn't happening uh, right at the early stages when that whole uh, discovery-based learning was, was the in thing in education. Um, so yeah, I mean, I talk about several different strategies which build on the sort of um, theories that came um, or come with the first part of the chapter, um, and in particular picking out the aspects to do with um, uh, Evan howe's forgetting curve how that over time we naturally forget things and if we don't play um, the sort of uh, rewind button or the or the playback button for our pupils in terms of knowledge that they've done uh, in in the past then they are never to be going to forget it um, and, we, and I talk about how we want to make sure that our sort of episode, our episodic memory um, is, um, is changed so that it's not rigid to a uh, particular episode um, and actually we want to make sure that we provide context and opportunities for people to be able to reflect back um, and retain those um, semantic memories that can deteriorate over the time and that's what Evan House, um did in his own experiment and found. Now, obviously, I talk, in, particularly in the book as well, that it's very difficult for us to decide as teachers what is that sort of optimum sort of retrieval gap. However, that comes down to, um, and I talk about it, it, comes down to what what is it that we're teaching them? And the complexity of those concepts or processes will maybe determine um, the time at which we leave um, before we start to retrieve or encourage pupils to retrieve. Um, i building some of their theory as well around uh, um, Rosenshine's principles, and I know Tom Sherrington's done a lot of work on, on Rosenshine and, and, and sharing that theory and putting it into practice. But a talk here as well that, and I think that Rosenshine really picks out on it, on a really good sort of strategy is using the beginning of a lesson as a real time to provide a short review of that previous learning. Um, and then also he links in the idea of that weekly and monthly review. And the one of the things I talk about uh, is a real quick strategy for teachers is to do some low sort of state quizzing um, at the start of a lesson. It doesn't have to be in the format of a, of a, a set of questions necessarily. It could be some images. It could be some... Um, uh some text it could be a quote it could be anything but just getting them at the start of the lesson to try and um, mm-hmm. reflect back on previous learning and link that particular reflection or that retrieval exercise into what they might be doing in that lesson um and that can be really powerful um and it's something that i implemented at um schools at over the last couple of years and it's been effective in encouraging pupils to really um, try and recall from memory. And something that I talk about in terms of making this a particularly more powerful strategy is encouraging those those pupils to do it do it from memory. And often that right at the start of introducing something like this, that retrieval um, activity, they can find it a bit daunting because. They inevitably want to go straight back to their notes. They want to check their notes. They want to make sure they've got it right. But if we're going to get this to really work as a strategy, I talk about that importance of making them do it from memory. And I share a lot of different strategies that teachers can use, um, in particular ones such as doing the image recalls or memory draws, um, can be powerful. Um, using learning journeys as well and, and checklists this idea that it gives people a real insight into what they're learning, but also enabling them to sort of be involved in that journey. And therefore they can really see the, the stages that they're in and allow them to really reflect um, where they're at, where they're going to next, what what they've covered previously and what they'll be covering um, as they move forward along that particular journey, that thread of the curriculum that they're maybe uh, in. And then in particular, the theory around, so I talked about, as we said in Chapter 1, about this idea of creating those revision cards or um, those key notes, that actually, when they've got those cards, we want to really show them what to do with those cards It's going to be most effective. And I talk about in Strategy 9 in, in Chapter 2 about the letter system, um, and that was the idea of using a particular series of, of boxes um which are spaced out over different timescales to get people to actually really use their revision cards uh, effectively. Um, and it was devised by uh, an Austrian guy called Sebastian Lettner um and he used it as a sort of spaced repetition system. And it's sort of that's how linked both with the sort of um R of craft is that idea of it's not just about using retrieval practice it's about effectively spacing that retrieval over um sort of different time scales to make it the most effective learning strategy that you can and then i talk about it in particular as well and i think i said it at the start in chapter one that involvement of parents as well that triangulation that actually sort of this idea with strategy 10 and 11 in chapter two is that we can use homework as a, as a platform for retrieval. Um, years ago I remember having different homework tasks where they go away and they'd be making volcanoes or they'd be uh, creating some sort of shanty town or they'd be going off and doing some wild research project and being, bringing back pages and pages of, of um, sort of booklets of notes and whilst that's great and whilst that is enabling them to go away and be creative that can be a different part of their, their sort of learning journey, not a necessary part of the homework. Um, and I talk about this idea of really embedding homework as an opportunity to do some retrieval based practice. And then that part about engaging the parents, getting them involved in that process, and actually parents can be um, a tool for retrieval um, to supporting their teachers, supporting their own child, and then having to really see the power of Recalling knowledge from memory.
1: No, absolutely. Um, There's so much there to pick up on, Michael. I was just looking at, you know, something I discussed in a previous episode with uh, Mark McCourt and maybe Kate Jones as well. Was about that kind of optimum retrieval gap that you talked about, and the kind of balance in that with the confines Mm. of a structure of lessons. Because a lot of schools and schools that I've worked in uh, recently. You know would have gone well we're going to go with a retrieval practice starter activity, which is great because it means that it happens, but it's not necessarily kind of the end of that particular learning episode as Mark spoke mm. about, so it's difficult to try and normalize the process without making it too rigid,
0: yeah one hundred percent, and I think it's about it's about i think and I, I think that I suppose the emphasis would be on the type of knowledge that you're you're getting people to record there are times when there's going to be certain concepts or processes that may not need to be recorded as often as others or may not need to have a great as great emphasis as others um and i think also not falling into the trap that you can only do retrieval practice at the start of a lesson or you could only do retrieval practice at the end of a lesson and actual fact you could do retrieval of knowledge at any point um throughout a lesson throughout the week um I saw quite a, an, a, an unusual approach, I suppose, that, um, that we trialled with, with, with Year 11 pupils, in particular, leading up to their examinations uh, last summer, was every uh, subject teacher decided what was the, the most important, to delve down to the most important, like 10 concepts that, that pupils were really struggling at in science and geography and maths and English and then create some little cards and the teachers wandered around with those cards during the school day and they just randomly stop at year 11 so, and ask them the question in the card. was they was going to the next lesson or maybe it was at break time or lunch time or the beginning of the day, but that was just another way to actually create an opportunity for pupils to practice retrieving um, and that was a, a very slightly different approach I suppose, but, but yeah, you're right I mean to set a particular time frame is difficult. But any sort of opportunity that teachers create to enable people to retrieve is gonna have an impact.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I, I guess it's just logistical demands of trying to ensure that a department or a school is actually doing the practice against, you know, making it part and parcel of your repertoire and then you can deploy it, you know, as and when it's necessary. And the other thing was, and I, I love this in the chapter about how practical the book is, but it'd be, it'd be interesting to see now in, in houses up and down the country whether the the work that's gone into, you know, maybe knowledge organisers and retrieval practice is actually being continued within the home because, you know, this this might be different to how you found it, Michael, but I found it really useful with, with parents that maybe weren't as engaged with homework because they find it quite challenging, and that'll be the case now with homeschooling as well, that, you know, retrieval practice is really beneficial because you've got the answers there. So teachers, so parents feel as if they can be involved in the learning, you know, with their children as well. So I'd be interested to see whether that is still going on up and down the country and whether that's being built into, you know, whatever online learning is going on at the moment.
0: Yeah, uh, yeah, definitely. I agree. And I think probably probably comes back to as well, that we we can't assume that parents parents do know how to... um, effectively encourage their child to retrieve knowledge and and we we as a school did spend some time um, Inviting parents in And showing them how they can do that and how they can use the revision cards with their child How they can use those powerful notes whether it be a revision clock or it be their corner notes and how like you say Those notes are there. They're correct. They're right. The the information is uh, accurate so then that next stage about showing the parents, demonstrating, to modelling to them how they can actually use those notes with their child, and I did that over the last couple of years. But like you say, that that sort of variation could could um, could be there up and down the country now. But um, I think the 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 good thing about the the uh, Education Endowment um, Foundation is they put forward some ideas, didn't they, recently about how um, parents can support their child and hopefully that like you say' being um, those notes are being utilized in the way that you would want them to be
1: absolutely uh the next chapter i mean we said at the beginning and and chris's uh recommendation for the book at the beginning talked about how well researched the book is and how much knowledge you know there is to share with the reader here and this really comes through in this in this chapter for me but i was kind of smiling at the scenario as we started because it mentions uh flight paths so chapter three we're into the a so how can assessment be used as a responsive teaching tool um, and again i'll just read through this but uh Yeah, flight paths, just, (laughs) you can imagine listeners cringing at the mere mention. So uh, Carl, a geography teacher of 20 years, spent many hours creating end-of-unit assessments to review his pupils' performance following a sequence of lessons. Once his classes had finished the assessment, he would record the level or grade that each individual pupil had achieved. Pupils would mark their scores on flight paths on the front of their exercise books throughout the academic year. It was a case of teaching content, set an assessment, mark it, give a level, and move on. These levels would then be uploaded at the request of school leaders to fulfill the data drop requirements at a whole school level, something like normally six times a year. It doesn't say that in the chapter, it's just me. (laughs) And most of the pupils would achieve their expected level, or in many cases exceed their target level for the end of the year, and move up their projected flight paths, mapping this on the front of their exercise book. Happy days, or so Carl believed. So I mean, this this is a brilliant chapter, like I said. Your own expertise in terms of your examiner's role, in terms of your, you know, your school role, but also in terms of the, you've really gone into looking at you know the work of William, the work of uh, Black, the work of Didow, the work of Rob Cole, amongst others in here. Um, and also, what I like about this as well, Michael, is that you've got throughout the book you've got this, but you've got some really powerful. Teacher spotlights in here, so just talk to us a little bit about how we can use assessment as a responsive teaching tool.
0: Yeah, and I think this this aspect of craft is probably, like you said, one of the most important and probably one of the the most difficult um, aspects of teaching that can often be done in a way that is not necessarily as effective as it should be. Um, and teachers can spend a lot of time in that scenario, like again, as Carl, are actually just wasting their time. And I think my, my frustration in, in, in recent years has been out of, like you say, my, my other experience outside of school. And therefore, in actual fact, there are times when teachers are, are not being allowed to use or being encouraged to use assessment in a way that isn't really as effective as it could be. Um, and I, I went through it years ago at the start of my career, Creating loads of level descriptors for different um, tasks, and I've given some examples in there. Taking the the, um, the national curriculum levels, trying to put a best fit, fit approach on the descriptors, and uh, I end up creating that many. It was um, it was unbelievable. Hours and hours of work, but as I soon came to realise, trying to to fit sort of. A student into one of those one of those descriptors for a particular piece of work is wasn't even the the reason for them, and that came out of the um, sort of government's review on um, on the sort of use of levels and the life after levels. And and the the, the quote sort of really uh, stuck out for me. This idea that too often levels became viewed as thresholds, and teachers teaching became focused on getting people to cross that next threshold and I remember like the, the idea that you had to get X percentage of people's over and that uh, it was really good if you got more people's over um, than you expected and it just, just became um, a real unusual time I suppose in teaching um, and then thankfully there, there's been sort of often like I movements and changes and removal of levels and that really allowed, I suppose, teachers, school leaders, and um, those involved in supporting schools, to really strip back and think about how are we assessing pupils and, and what are we are doing. And I think the work of um, most recently, like Harry Fletcher Wood and his his book on responsive um, teaching, really gets you to think. Actually, assessment or assessment within schools should be. Um, uses a responsive tool and not not necessarily a tool that um, that has been used in the past. Um, and like you say, I've, in the book I do talk about different elements of research from William and Black and, and so forth, and Harry Fletcher Wood and David Didel. Um But I suppose the, the important bit is going back to what are what are we using assessment for? What is the purpose of it? Um, and actually, when we when we strip that back, what we what we want to do is when we assess any any pupil in the classroom, we want to know what it is they can do now, um, what it is they need to do next, and then guiding them to get there. Um, and if we can really hold on to those sort of core three um, aspects of reasons why we assess, then we can start putting in sort of more effective structures to make it um, a real responsive tool. Um, and I think it comes back to as well, uh, there's a lot um, I suppose um, hung on to around difference between formative and summative assessment. And I talk about this in the book as well. I think really summative assessment is, is an aspect of, of teaching that should be um, relatively limited within schools um, and it's more about really a summative assessment, it's something that you would class is something that's usually done externally. Um but I know that there are occasions when schools do have approaches with summative assessments sort of captures. Um but keeping those to a minimum is more probably more effective. And actually focusing on the, the greater use of um sort of formative assessment um would be more beneficial benefiting, sorry, in terms of uh, helping pupils to, to sort of move forward. So the first bit I really talk about is that whole idea of designing assessment um, and the sort of craft approach is about creating assessment opportunities that are low threat, low-stakes, but they are cumulative in their approach. So the the traditional approach is do a topic, let's assess at the end of the topic. Do another topic, let's assess at the end of the topic. Um, But actually, I talk about this idea of creating small cumulative assessment opportunities which build on knowledge over time um, rather than it being about separate topics. And actually, it's it's probably more beneficial that when you're doing a particular aspect, uh, say in geography, when you're looking at maybe sort of uh, aspects of coastal landforms, that you bring back in the, the bit about the coastal processes that they learnt within that particular assessment. Um, if you're doing another aspect of, say, rivers that you bring in, another aspect of coast at the same time that has a similar link to similar concepts and processes, so you actually create assessments that not only allow you allow teachers to get an idea of where people are at right in that particular stage of that sort of learning journey or that curriculum um, point, but you also giving it opportunities for them to reflect back again onto the other other aspects of knowledge that they've covered in the past. Um, and then I talk about the whole idea of learning intentions and, and that, that can vary depending on different schools. And I think that um, David Didier really sort of um, encapsulated the problems with it. it. They became a bit of a, a tick box exercise, a bit of white noise on, on a PowerPoint. And I definitely echo in the book Like David said, it's not about writing down objectives, but we want people to know exactly where we're going in this particular stage of learning. So it's important to share it with them, Um, but it's not necessarily a tick-box exercise. Definitely not. I think that was something that I stressed sort of in the chapter. And then i talk about the whole concept of questioning, which is a really powerful tool. Again, draw on some of the ideas of Rosenshine's uh, principles about questioning. Um, share some key ideas and strategies to to question and then, like you say um, I thought that this chapter in particular because it is uh, a topic that is regularly debated by school leaders and, and um, colleagues um, within departments about how they assess effectively to give some real um, clarity amongst a different um, set of um, sort of practitioners who come from different backgrounds and different subjects as Dawn Cox shares her as an RE teacher and her approach assessment. We've got um, Aidan um, Devers from um, a primary setting, who's a, a primary deputy head, and shares how they assess. Um, and then we've got um, ben, ben Barker, who's, um, who's also like a vice principal at uh, a secondary school, again, really shares how they've approach, the use of formative and summative assessment. Uh, And in particular, one one of the aspects that I really like about uh, Ben's um, spotlight is the fact that they really use um, hypotheses in lessons uh, as a school, and those hypotheses really drive um, the sort of approach in lesson and getting pupils to really think about um, the concepts or processes that they're doing allowing that assessment to be much more effective um, throughout the lesson or over time, whether that be through um, uh, sort of a a retrieval activity in in the coming weeks or the coming months. But I think it comes back to that point of, um, as I said about the the, the key reasons um, why there are problems, what are we using assessment for and we're using it to get a, Almost like, I suppose, an analogy of taking a photo, taking a snapshot at that time. Where is that people out there that's in front of you? Where do they need to go to get to that sort of highest point that you want them to be at? Um, and then finding that sort of route to get there. And those routes, again, will probably be different for the 20 to 30 people that sat in front of you. They all have different roadmaps, different routes, but you want them all on that, that same sort of um destination uh depending on that sort of concept or process that you are you are um working with them on
1: definitely you've touched on it uh, there and you've talked about it in the chapter reflection it's a really powerful reflection at the end of the chapter and they say concentrate on using assessment as a tool to help pupils learn and you know rather than and you don't say this but kind of the implication rather than using it as it may have previously have been to kind of justify uh, the quality of teaching or monitor teachers performance it's, it's very much around encouraging or helping pupils to learn
0: yeah 100% and I think I, I think that I think my my passion I suppose is is also born around the, the extra role that I have um outside of school but i do think i do feel that it shouldn't be a tool for accountability Um, and that's when you get teachers using assessment to merely justify their position within that school and that is that is not what we want we want assessment to be a tool that really helps pupils to understand where they're at and teachers to understand where they're at and then help them move forward and I think the problem is that inevitably, to meet sort of um, school targets and and sort of the wider demands within our education system, that teachers use it to to justify their their position. And inevitably, and I talk about this as one well chapter. Often, when you, especially when you're doing a summative assessment, the accuracy of that assessment is probably quite low um due to the the variation and the variables that are involved in using that form of assessment. Um and actually when you strip it back, the the most effective assessments are those that are not focused on grades, they're not focused on uh levels, they're not focused on percentage, they're not focused on saying that pupil got eight out of eight out of eight on that particular exam question that they might be doing. It's about saying, okay, what 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 was what was the strength of that particular response? That that particular task. What do they need to do next, and how can we get them to that sort of um, next sort of stage? Um, and I think that has been the problem in the past. But uh, to be honest, I've seen, and that's why I put, that's why those examples are in there. There's definitely examples around the country and internationally where schools are using. Um, assessment as a real powerful tool rather than being an accountability um, tool.
1: No, absolutely. Absolutely. They're great examples. Uh, Moving into the next chapter, and I'm going to kind of start with the end of the chapter and then work my way forward. So something that has moved quite a lot over the last couple of years is marking. And you talk about it in the chapter review at the end, and he said that marking had become an unnecessary burden on teachers' time. And you know, things publications like EEF's marked improvement, for example, did quite a lot to try and move away from what was prevalent sort of five, six years ago. And you know, it's a personal story on this, and it's not a reflection against the school I was working at at the time. It was just a reflection of the, the times that we were in. So it was almost at a point where I had to buy a new car to get a boot the size to kind of fit in the marking monitoring uh, when I had to sample. Three books from each class for each teacher in a large department, uh, which was humanities, mm. actually, at the time. So, I mean, we've moved quite a long way from that. Um, mm. And in this chapter, you talk about the F and the T of craft and how can teachers provide pupils with precise feedback. So if we can just share the, the scenario again at the start of the chapter. So Andrea, and NQT, spent many hours outside of her allocated teaching time with pupils to provide detailed written feedback as directed by her school's marking policy. She expected to mark in detail every couple of weeks, providing pupils with a what went well, as well as an even better if-comment for an extended piece of writing. The extensive nature of the written feedback that is expected by her school leaders means her working week often exceeds 50 hours. It's become a continuous feedback cycle of providing written feedback for pupils, often repeating the same guidance to several pupils. Andrea is a conscientious teacher and wants to be seen to be doing a good job. The elusive book looks are held on a regular basis, which means she must ensure she keeps on top of her marking. She questions the impact of this extensive written feedback on her pupil outcomes. So yes, how can we provide people precise feedback and kind of linking in with the assessment to, to kind of feed forward and improve their performance?
0: Yeah, definitely. And I think um, I put originally I was going to do these this sort of um, the F&T separate chapters, but I decided actually um, I went back full circle and said that I thought actually these two sort of phrases feedback and feed forward to go hand in hand that actually they should go together because i want wanted to really echo that that um that sort of line of thought that actually they, they when they're when they're used together they're more powerful than being used separately, and I think that's why I decided to put them together in the end But yeah, I mean I talk about. Years ago, I spent hours marking books and repeating the same comments and so forth. Um, And actually, did it have any impact? Probably not. Um, And I talked about this idea that many schools saw quantity of marking was sort of king over the quality of the marking. The more the teacher marked, the more the book had red pen, the more it had what went well as EBI's, stickers, merits, all sorts of things the more it had that the more that that teacher was effective in their marking and i think that's that's where we've moved a lot we've moved away from this idea we're not marking we're providing that people with a form of feedback on on where they're at from that particular assessment or maybe they've done a, um, a retrieval practice exercise um where are they at we want to provide them some feedback on that we're not marking it um to enable them to then feed forward and i think that was the problem that quantity of marking was the king over the quality of it so i talk about how we sort of can move away from that ineffective and inefficient way of providing any feedback um and I've, i've i've talked particularly about sort of probably what i would say five key areas to do that so create a feedback culture and creating a feedback charter within Within schools and, and lessons and classrooms and and different groups is that we want that feedback to be timely and again it's not about saying in that particular school right every every child has to have feedback and, and every two weeks because that may not work for a particular subject it may not be relevant it may not be the right time to give them feedback you may want to give them feedback um, the next day or you may want to give them feedback there and then so I think the problem with that is when you start having policies where you say everyone has to get have some form of feedback in two weeks and two-week cycle, you you're going to get variations where some teachers are going to think, oh, do I give feedback now or not? Or do I wait till that 2 weeks window is, is then due and so forth? So I think the word timely needs to be used, I would say, carefully. I think that needs to be down to the sort of um, discretion of the teacher and the subject and the time. I uh, talk about it being a receptive culture. We want pupils to embrace that process of feedback. Um, we want it to be granular, so concrete-specific targets. I remember someone's been told before that right, every piece of work needs to have a uh, what went well and needs to have um, a certain number of targets. doesn't matter. Even if they've done really well on that piece of work and you can't find any area for improvement at that point, still need to give them a the target because everyone needs a target um and i think when you start giving people lots of targets then that can become overwhelming and we want it to be specific we want them to be able to see okay what do i need to do to move forward in that piece of work and be able to see them do it and feel a, a sense of achievement too much at once can can mean that, that may not be um the case supporting that idea of self-regulation and i talk about the idea and that links heavily into sort of that reflection part that of our craft whereby uh, if we give them sort of key knowledge the the journey that they'll be on make it really explicit to them then it'll support them in being um uh, more effective self-regulated learners uh, and making it fluid again and it goes back to that point earlier on where we want it to that feedback to flow between the sort of teacher and pupil and also um, parents as well. Um, so yeah, so i go into some evidence and examples of studies, uh, in particular one where giving people's grades or a ta- um, particular percentage can be distracted um, and actually stripping that back and just focusing on the knowledge is more powerful than than actually awarding the types of grades or levels or or percentages So then I've broken it down really into sort of some key areas. So the language of the feedback that we give pupils um, And trying to reduce that whole um, egocentric sort of comments and really focus on the sort of the, the um, Particular knowledge that, that, that you want them to um, that you were focusing on and the outcome that you wanted from it. i give some examples in terms of when, t- when English teachers are encouraging pupils to uh, write more effective essays um, or in geography when they're doing um, uh, particular pieces of work where they're focused on the use of case study evidence and that the advice and the feedback, the enabling to feed forward is really focused on that and not necessarily um, other parts of the of the process Um, talks about being relentless so the feedback is is relentless we want it to be something that's happening all the time Um, and we want to be consistent because if we're going to have people that are going to uh, embrace the feedback then they need to know that it's something that is important to that teacher Um, and therefore if we're consistent with how it's approached um, and pupils can see that it is an important part of their learning process, then they're more likely to be engaged in it. Um, talk then, as I have just mentioned, really about delaying any marks or grades um, before giving uh, or when giving the feedback, delaying of those marks or grades. Talks about like the in-the-moment feedback it comes back to that point about it being timely. It can be sometimes where you just want to give that pupil... A little nudge in the classroom and you want to say to them actually if you do this then that's going to that's going to point you in in the right direction where you need to be at the end of the lesson or the next few lessons or where there might be a misconception that you can spot there and then the teachers should feel empowered to be able to do that um that particular type of feedback and then talk about them becoming their own sort of error detectives and that comes back to those um learning journeys or success criteria that you provide them um, enabling them to be able to look and check. And also I talk about this idea that you want pupils to hand in a piece of work that is that is ready to, to, for you to look at and give some feedback because you don't want to be you want to be saying something, you don't want to be picking up some of those real simple errors that could have been... Um, avoided if they'd done some of their own proofreading and i think that's really important that part of being more self-regulated learners and then it caught we finished sort of finished with some really great spotlights from zoe enza um about her approach to feedback and sarah Larson and her her work on the project for uh verbal feedback with um teacher toolkit uh which is fantastic and gives some real clear ideas there on how we can use feedback more powerfully. And then it finishes off with with Jack um, Tavisley-Marsh who looks at um, how they've approached feedback and they've, as a school, uh, created a great emphasis on teachers using visualizers in the classroom to sort of give that in the moment feedback uh, through the use of modeling, um, which has been powerful, as he talks about. In terms of um, having pupils become more reflective and embracing um, that feedback sort of approach to enable them to feed forward. Um, And I think I I asked him to put in some um, examples from um, his pupils and what they thought. Um, It was nice to see this this sort of group of pupils and their own reflections of the process. Um, Just to share the one here, I'm just looking at now year 11 students that I really like watching a teacher explain their thinking whilst going through a task under visualise it gives me confidence to know the, stage, the steps or stages to go through when it's my turn um, and I think that's the other bit as well um, the, the less feedback we can give them to feed forward can actually be of a benefit if we if we show them the process beforehand then they'll get a greater satisfaction that actually when they give it a go they have um great, they can embrace it and have greater um, belief that they'll be able to um, achieve what it is uh, that's been set for that particular task. Um, but yeah, I suppose it comes back to, and I put it in the review, that we want um, feedback and, and the feed-forward process to not be an unnecessary burden on teachers' time, um, and we want a greater emphasis on the pupils doing more of the work and the teachers guiding them along that way through that real razor sharp sort of feedback
1: absolutely so we're just going to move into the final chapter michael if we might and uh, the final chapter you're going to consider how leaders can cultivate a culture that crafts learning and um i particularly enjoyed the teacher spotlight that you've got in the last chapter so it's it's friend of the show um and all round good guy sam strickland talking about his experiences at his school so just tell us a little bit about how we can go about establishing a culture of learning as a craft coach
0: yeah, I mean this. This is a relatively short chapter deliberately because this is something that I want to build on in in the coming years and, to, and maybe a future sort of sort of book about looking at how teachers can really craft um, craft their teaching um, and especially approach assessment. But yeah, I mean I talk here about it, and it comes back to that culture of learning that you, you want to establish a, a culture whereby. Uh, there's a greater emphasis on learning. Um, and I pulled out a quote from Follin who said that school cultures is about the guiding beliefs and expectations evident in the way a, sc- um, a school operates. Um, and I think Sam um, Sam's spotlight really sort of um, encaps- encapsulates those sort of um, key aspects of how to build that culture, as you said. Um, and I think it's moving away from this whole um, concept or sort of historical view that when when we're supporting teachers, we need to go in and do lots of observations and we need to um, give them lots of targets and I actually talk about this whole approach to instructional coaching is more powerful and if we're if we're saying that pupils need granular targets they need Um, time to reflect on our feedback they need to know what to do to move forward then that approach really should apply to teachers as well Um, I think Dylan Williams talked before about how every teacher is always um, learning and uh, actually the more you become a reflective um, practitioner in the classroom the more effective you can become Um, and that's why I talk about establishing a culture of learning both for pupils and also staff and that it's a, it's a process that is um, sort of embedded in the whole sort of institution of the school um, and I, I've picked out that particular quote before um, for Sam's spotlight where uh, Lucy Stein and, and it was Julie uh, Cole said that um, for an instructional coaching program to be effective School leaders need to play an active role in selecting trained coaches, developing a targeted coaching strategy, and evaluating whether coaches are having the desired impact for teaching and learning. I think that lots of schools have, have um, embraced instructional coaching, but actually, it's about making sure that there's the right foundation set with those real experienced people who are involved in that, delivering that coaching training, in order to ensure that it becomes a successful sort of. Um, sort of process
1: absolutely okay just want to say michael it's been an absolute pleasure to speak to you today um it's a superb book uh, there's absolutely wealth of, of insight there from like i said your day-to-day role and your, your outside of school role and there's absolutely bags of ideas for listeners to take away so just tell the listeners a little bit about where the book's available anything else that you're doing um to further promote that i know that's difficult as we're in this kind of Uh, limbo period at the moment and uh, a little bit a bit more about where they can find out more about you as well
0: yeah so um the book's available now and and recently um uh the sort of kindle edition was out it was out last week so it's available directly from john Cat um and amazon um i mean in terms of uh the future um i know that there'll be some opportunities to do some sort of further sharing of the ideas of craft like you say at the minute it's quite difficult but um as things return to some level of normality that that is um is definitely on the cards um i am looking at sort of next stages of of um building on this which is to really focus on that aspect of feedback um from all all aspects um, and then yeah i mean I, I'm share, always sharing ideas and, and strategies for, for teachers through my um my twitter account, which is um at m underscore Childs. so um if you're following me there you'll see that i'm I'm always sharing ideas and strategies and a lot of them come from the book or other strategies um from the past but um but yeah, so it's been, it's been great. I um, really appreciate it. I hope I haven't rambled on too much for, for people when they come back and listen to it, um, and it makes, it makes sense. But really, my main reason for doing it, and, and I think I've mentioned this before, is that I wanted to create a, a book that wasn't too long because of teachers' time is precious, but really got to, um, got to the forefront of, of what it is that we can do to be really effective practitioners and provide teachers with some strategies that they can sort of take away um, and use in the classroom sort of the following day after reading it. And hopefully when we are back in the classroom, that is something that uh, people that have read the book or will read the book uh, will be able to
1: do. Well, that's absolutely right. And that's the big thing that I had from, from kind of reading that this week is that the feeling of wanting to get back I mean, I'm still at school, but once to get back into the classroom and doing all of these things, because, you know, although I, I bang on about this all the time as well, although I'm still a senior leader, I'm still very much a teacher. So it was really good to kind of look at this and think, right, you know, as soon as we can get back into this, I can action a lot of the things that Michael's talking about in there. So just a reminder for listeners, the book is The Craft of Assessment. And like Michael said, it's out everywhere now. Thanks again for your time today, Michael. Really appreciate it. No, thank you. It's been great.
2: Netter, just talking to teachers podcast pedagogy what is phil reading this week podcast
1: pedagogy listening to teachers
2: nailer's netter just talking to teachers
1: this week I'm reading A Sage on the Stage by Michael Zweigstra. And Michael is a Canadian public high school teacher who is, by his own admission, a strong proponent of raising academic standards. And he promotes a common sense educational policy pushing up against, in the words of Tom Bennett, quack science, junk theory, snake oil, fads, tradition, dogma, and all manner of magic beans. This book begins by the dismantling of educational fads, some of which will be very familiar to readers in the UK, but there are also some contextual fads for international audiences. And I particularly enjoyed Michael's dismantling of the guide on the side narrative, which was so prevalent here in the UK for so many years. So Michael talks with passion about how tests are good for students and that content knowledge is so important. It's a fantastic chapter on improving the life of teachers and students which is full of lots of practical suggestions that readers could take away and use. The last chapter is on the overhyped premises of technology and it's a really really interesting read particularly at this juncture where technology is beginning to play a larger role than ever in education. So if you're looking to cut through the rubbish and you're looking to hear a positive case for things that really work, then this is definitely a book for you. So Sage stage on the Stage is published by John Catt Educational and is available from the John Catt website everywhere.
2: Nailers Natter, just talking to teachers. Talking to
1: teachers about academic research and evidence-based practice with continuing professional development at PNA 1977
2: on Twitter. Nailers Netter just talking to teachers.